and welcome to the Not Just Any Cancer podcast with me, Catherine Bouvier. Each month, I will be speaking to those affected by neuroendocrine cancer, those treating and working in the field of neuroendocrine cancer, and those supporting anybody um, affected by neuroendocrine cancer, bringing you relevant and interesting information to hopefully guide you through what can seem like a confusing and sometimes lonely path. And today I am sitting again at Neuroendocrine Cancer UK's headquarters here in Leamington Spa, but the sun is shining and that does really make everything just a little bit better. And I'm waiting to be joined on Zoom by Michelle and Deborah, who will be sharing with us their experiences of that route to diagnosis. And in contrast to Maxine and Simon, who talked about their experiences um, and their primary diagnoses um, in the small bowel um, and of multiple endocrine neoplasia or the pancreatic neuroendocrine cancer, Michelle and Deborah both have different types of primary neuroendocrine cancer. Uh, one primary site in the lung and the other was a rectal neuroendocrine cancer primary. So welcome both. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, As you know, this month, as part of our virtual series, we're focusing on symptoms prior to diagnosis and really gaining insights and experiences from our community uh, to understand the challenges um, or maybe no challenges and and hopefully also gain some valuable sort of hints and tips around managing uh, that that particular time in the patient pathway. Um, So can I turn to you first, Michelle. Um, you were diagnosed with a lung neuroendocrine cancer, I believe. Yes. Um, what was that time like for you? I mean, how did you get diagnosed and when? And and did you initially think that maybe you had some lung malignancy? Okay, so um, I was diagnosed in September 2018. Um, I had no symptoms Um, I had no indication whatsoever that there was anything at all the matter with me. We had gone, (laughs) it was um, August bank holiday weekend, and we had gone down to the Isle of Wight um, with another family for a holiday. Um, On the first day that we arrived that evening, I started to feel a little bit unwell. Um, Tired and well, or just a bit, you know? Um, I, I, to be honest, we'd um, packed up the dog and the family and another family and travelled down to the Isle of Wight that day. Um, so I kind of put it down to probably just being a little bit, um, right, we've made it. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, as the evening progressed, I thought I'll have a glass of wine. That'll make me feel better. And it didn't. So I kind of gave up and thought, right, get yourself to bed early night and then you can enjoy the rest of your holiday. Um, I spent the night being sick and by six o'clock the following morning, my husband said, right, get in the car. I'm taking you up to the hospital. Um, we had no mobile phone signal. We were on holiday. Probably if I'd been at home, I'd have just gone to my GP or something or maybe phone one. So, um, arrived at St. Mary's in the Isle of Wight very early in the morning, quite literally bent double, couldn't stand up. Um, 
And is that through pain? Did you have sort of? Yeah, I was in. I was in a lot of pain, and obviously had been up all night, so I was probably exhausted as well. Um, a very lovely junior doctor who'd obviously pulled the short straw to work the bank holiday weekend, um, put me in a bed and cubicles, and um, attached me to a drip and some paracetamol and ran some bloods and did various other tests. Yeah. Um, one of which was a chest X-ray, which I thought at the time was a little bit odd, but um, yeah, wasn't. definitely you had no chest. <laughs> you didn't have a cough, no. pain, or no. Um, I, I think it's just something they do when you t- turn up um, in A and E, and she was obviously following a tick list, and that's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, in this case, <laughs> and I wasn't in a position to argue with her, um, so I sort of took. Um, the medicine and the drip that they put in and after a few hours they discharged me sent me home and said they thought I possibly had gallstones um, and that I should go and see my GP when I got back and arrange a scan so I said okay fine um, I went home or went back to the the house that we were renting for the week and had a great holiday I felt I felt fine the next day um, we had a good time I went went home um, and then about 10 days later, I had contacted my GP to try and arrange this um, scan. And I received a call from the surgery to say the doctor wants to you to make an appointment to come in. Um, and I said, OK, why? And he said, the receptionist said, oh, there's we've got your X-ray results. I was like, well, I don't know why, why you want to see me about that. Of course, because um, you're thinking, of course, you've got something wrong with the digestive area and the yeah, gut area. And... I'm, I'm expecting to be sent off for a scan of my um, my gallbladder. gallbladder. Uh-huh. The doctor basically said, we want to see you. And I was a bit frustrated because I was like, well, if you haven't got all of my results from the Isle of Wight, what's, what's the point in me coming in? So um, they then sort of called me back the next day and said, you do need to speak to the doctor. And I said, okay. I said, and I agreed to a telephone conversation with him. I was far too busy to go to the doctors. Um, And he called me the next day and said, we've got your um, x-ray results. And again, I was a bit like getting quite exasperated with them, to be honest. (laughs) Why does everybody keep banging on about my x-ray results? Um, And he, I, I can tell you exactly where I was stood. I was just outside the Bank of England in London. And he said, your x-ray has come back with a shadow. And I was a bit like, what? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> what? Hang on a minute. What's this got to do with my gallbladder? Um, and he was like, no, this is your lung. And I was like, right, okay. So I said, so what do you want to do then? And he said, well, I'm going to send you for a CT scan. I said, okay, should I be worried? And he said, I mean, I feel for him now because I'm standing on a street corner and he's telling me that I've got a shadow on my lung and he's probably thinking, they didn't teach me this at medical school. No, and it would have been different face to face maybe. (laughs) She's she's supposed to be sat next to me and I'll be able to sort of, you know, 
um, talk through this in a sensible fashion. Um, but that was my fault, not his. Um, and I said, should I be worried? And he said, well, no, it could be, you know, and he was very calm and he said it could be many things and we really just need to find out and everything. And I said, OK, that's fine. Set it up. Let me know. And, and I'll go. Still nothing. No alarm bells ringing in my head. Nothing. Um, and then the, I, the next day I got a phone call to say, right, your CT scan is tomorrow. It's like, crikey. This is, this is yeah, yeah. speed. But I kind of thought, well, we live in a nice area and the NHS is great and we've got a fabulous hospital in it. Just must be the way it is. So I went off my CT scan and I then got on a train and went back to work. And my husband called me and he said, I've just walked through the door. He said, you've got an appointment with a lung specialist next week. I was like, crikey, I said, they can't. I've only just got out the scanner. What, you know, what's going on? And he said, it's with an oncologist. Sorry, what? (laughs) Mm. I I then hung up on my husband, phoned the doctors and said, you need to get him to ring me like now. And he said to me, have you heard of the 14-day pathway? And I said, no, what's that? And he then explained to me that when anybody turns up in the surgery with a variety of different sort of symptoms or, you know, a suspect shadow on an X-ray, that the NHS has this 14-day pathway. Yeah. Um, And that was the first I'd heard of it. So he said that that then accounted for why people kept talking about 14 days and two weeks and when I was in the scanner and stuff like that. Right. So you'd overheard that anyway, thinking what's going yeah. on. They said, oh, yeah, your report will be ready in about 14 days, within the 14 days. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Fine. Yeah. OK, no problem. Um, so this all sort of went on, um, by which point, yeah, I was then in a, a state of shock, I think, mm. um, in sick thinking I maybe got gallstones and now people were talking about tumours and lungs. Um, the, right. the hospital the next day for the CT scan, they said, we'll put you through to the consultant. It went straight through to a, an answer machine. So I phoned my GP again, I tell you, he had a really rough time with me that week. And he agreed to see me at late that afternoon. And he had printed off the radiographer's uh, report that um, said at the bottom that his considered opinion was that it was a carcinoid tumour. Okay. Um, Well, I've never heard of that. (laughs) I thought, what? I mean, the other thing I have to clarify is um, I don't smoke. I've never smoked. I had no cough, nothing. Um, Although I do think I'm going to get a T-shirt printed with that on it because if I've answered that question once, I've answered it a hundred times. And that was the sort of the start of... A very sweet, I mean, that was probably, so I was in hospital on the end of August. I looked it up. That report was the 17th of September. Mm. It was very, very quick. Um, And as my GP said, I think this is going to drive a truck through everything between now and Christmas. And he was right. It did. (laughs) And I mean, that is the, I mean, it is the, the, the huge benefit where things work well is when you've got a dedicated pathway for a suspicion of, of a cancer of any sort, which is something that we yeah. certainly 
um, lack within the neuroendocrine community because often there's no suspicion. Um, and if I guess you hadn't have had that chest X-ray, um, yep. you know, there might still be an unknown, you know, floating around. Um, I think I was very lucky. Um, had I not been on holiday, um, I probably I might have phoned one one one. I might have gone to see my GP. Um, I don't know. But if it had got better the next day, you might have done nothing. Exactly. Um, they reckon it had been there between three and five years. Right. And I had, as I said, no symptoms. But at some point, it possibly would have made itself known. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's um, rather different to you, Deborah, isn't it? having read your wonderful blog which everyone can actually see on our website um deborah you have a a a different story um mine i i started getting um i started to feel ill i'd say around 2015 um i was feeling very lethargic i was always tired um, and and then I was having kind of problems with I wasn't I wasn't incontinent but I was I was really struggling to kind of hold my pee like I was constantly always wanting to go to the toilet okay. um, and and that used to kind of really irritate me and worry me along with joint pains and stuff I was just feeling generally kind of run down. Um, I was also reaching that age where I thought, you know, the menopause was coming on and stuff. So, and you can blame anything on the menopause, can't you? Really, this is it. You can blame everything on it. So I was just like, <laughs> it's got to be. These have got to be like symptoms of my menopause coming on. Um, so I, I had a series of tests done um, around 2015 and 16, um, and they. Um, finally diagnosed me with an autoimmune um, disease called um, surgeon's disease. I might not be pronouncing it correctly, but yeah, surgeon's disease. And basically affects your joints, um, makes you feel quite tired, um, dry eyes and um, sort of like blistery mouth and stuff as well. I was like, okay, well, I know what that is. That doesn't seem too drastic. I can um, kind of get on and just do what I'm doing. I was also having what I at the time thought was like erratic, um, irregular bouts of like piles. Yeah. So get these these lumps um, by my own, um, by my bum, and I'd be thinking, oh, I've got piles again. I've got hemorrhoids again. Um, sometimes so uncomfortable, I- isn't it? It's very uncomfortable. And like these were real uncomfortable. I mean, I'd be sitting and be in the most pain and not be telling anybody that I was in pain. But everybody gets hemorrhoids at some point. And I just yeah. thought it's a bit embarrassing though, isn't it? I mean, it's one of those conversations you don't really want to have. Don't want to be going around telling, them, oh, have you had hemorrhoids this month or whatever? And then I started to think that it was happening around the time of my cycle as well. On top of that, I was getting a lot of constipation. So I was so in my mind, I was putting that down to me getting the hemorrhoids. Um, again, I just I just managed it. I just it was one of those things that I didn't really discuss with anybody. I just managed the symptoms um, and got on with it. That 
I mean, even though I was suffering with that, that's not actually what I went to the doctors about. You know, I was more concerned about the tiredness and the dryness in my eyes. So I never even, like, I never made a fuss about those those symptoms that I was having. And then um, come 2019, um, so, again, I tried to kind of eat the right foods, tried to make sure I was going regular I mean it got to the stage where I was quite used to not going for a couple of days and then going and that again you just I just kind of ignored if I've got to be honest I ignored my symptoms quite a bit but they're quite non-specific again aren't they and I guess people do go through bouts of changing bowel habit and um, you know it becomes normal for you doesn't it this is what happens to me Exactly. And that's exactly what I was thinking. Oh, this is this is just the norm for me, you know. So um, completely just kind of didn't think about it too often. And then in 2019, no. So it was last year. We've got to get all my years mixed up now with all of this lockdown. Basically, <laughs> went into first lockdown in, in 2020. Um, you know, it was the opportunity to kind of start looking after myself a bit more. Um, and looking at how I was eating, and I just, I still kept feeling quite lethargic. I kept um, having really bad bouts of bloatedness. I was really bloating up a lot in my stomach. I can't understand why, like, my stomach and the top part of my stomach kept bloating like that all the time. Um, So I went back to the doctor's, I explained the symptoms that I was having in my bottom as well, feeling like it was, at times it would feel like, without being too graphic, that my bottom was actually trying to fall out. Um, Yeah, the pain was that bad sometimes, um, which made me want to, which is why I went back to the doctors to to get them to look at it. I was referred to a, a bowel specialist and they said that I was suffering with, um, organ prolapse oh yeah okay yeah that so they happens, thought, doesn't it yeah yes because yes. I was yeah so I was like okay that makes a bit more sense that that's making a bit of sense to me again wasn't overly worried about it figured that it was something that I could work on I was told to go home work on my pelvic floor exercises that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um and maybe and then, treatable I guess you thought yeah, yeah, d- definitely. For okay, we, we can handle this. It's again, it's something I don't need to really worry myself about. Um, but then, as the year went on, so I only had one appointment with them because we went into lockdown in March. But I was on a work trip. I was on a work trip that earlier on that year um, in India, and I have never told anybody about this. But I had a bout of constipation while I was on this trip in India. Now, I'm in a country where the spices are unbelievable. All the food is quite rich and I wasn't really having any problems. And then one day I just I just it it was awful. The pain was awful. I was in hot sweats on in in the bathroom um, and it just felt like my body felt like it was trying to pass a bus that's the best way I could describe it um and just thought that I was going to throw up and do everything at the same time so when I got back home and I saw the bowel um specialist stuff 
I was a bit disappointed that I'd only managed to get one um, appointment with them. So um, as the year went on, obviously lockdown and that, you stop thinking about things. You, you get into that routine of thinking, okay, this is this is this is me. This is how I do things. It's nothing to worry about. And then around October, I noticed I started to notice like blood in my stools. And I was like, hmm, that's probably not right. But along with having the bouts of hemorrhoids and the bleeding from my anus, again, I just thought they were all connected. Mm. Um, and again, I wasn't thinking alarm bells, but I did want it checked out. And, and, that's, and, and I was quite insistent on that. Um, and I saw a, um, is it a locum doctor? So it's not your normal GP. Yeah, yeah, I, that's right. Yeah, and I went in to see her and she was like, okay, I, I need you to, to bring me a sample in and I'm going to book a um, colonoscopy for you. Um, and we'll have a look at this. And I was like, okay, that's fair enough. I'm glad even though we're in lockdown, they're still, you know, managing to put these kind of tests in for people. So I, I felt quite chilled and relaxed about it. Um, so that was kind of December and the procedure was going to happen in January. Um, and I had it done towards the end of Jan. And I remember the doctor, the, the surgeon saying to me at the time, she said to me that if we find anything, like we might find some polyps or something, and if we can remove them, we will remove them, you know. And I remember her going through me with the camera and looking on the screen and thinking, oh, my gosh, isn't, isn't that amazing, the body? <laughs> Quite subdued with the anaesthetic that I'd been given. And, and then I saw her poking at it. I saw the pollock, I saw her poking at it, and I was thinking, oh, okay, maybe she's going to try and take it out. And she kept prodding and doing whatever she was to it. Um, and then when she finished, she said, oh, um, I know you've seen everything on the screen. Do you want me to explain what's going to happen next? So I said, yes. And she said, well, um, you've got a pollock there, and it's actually better. I think it would be a dis disadvantage to you, if I try to take it out now, I'm going to send it off for some tests. So okay. I was like, she took a little okay. biopsy, maybe. That's what her prodding was. That's exactly what she wanted to do, take a little biopsy. So she said, I've taken some samples um, and we're going to send it off for testing um, and then we'll get back to you um, with the results. So I stick it into this bag that was marked urgent all over it. <laughs> And I remember, because I was, I was still quite sedated, so I just remember watching everything and just being really calm. Like it, nothing was, nothing was making me feel anxious or nervous. It was just all the procedure that I needed to go through. I got home. I spoke to my mum about it quite calmly, um, and then within, and this is within literally an hour and a half, an hour, not more than two hours of being home. I got a call from a Macmillan navigator nurse. That's similar to Michelle in a way, isn't it? Once there's a suspicion, yeah. you know, they're on it with you, aren't they? They are on it. And I, again, I don't know if it was so, I, it still didn't, it still wasn't. I'm like, this is a Macmillan nurse. And it wasn't until that night that I was like, hold on, Macmillan's related to cancer in it. 
Yeah, a bit like oncology. I guess you had similar, did you, Michelle? That's the point when you went, mm. Yes. Oncology. Start to use words that you think, yeah, like the Macmillan team and, you know, the, the oncology appointment and you suddenly start, it, that's when the alarm bells start to ring. Start to ring. And I said, I promised myself, I'm not, I promised myself I wasn't going to get myself anxious about anything that I didn't know. So I tried to keep very positive about what all, what was going to go on. And, and like you said, Michelle, you go through this whirlwind of tests and phone calls and stuff within the first kind of 14 days. And it almost yeah. feels surreal doesn't it because there's so much happening I mean when I look back now and look at I I had to go for an MRI scan I had to have a CT scan I had to have several bloods done um and it yeah. I had to meet my surgeon the rectal it surgeon was, it, it was my GP who he said this will drive a truck through everything between now and Christmas and he was absolutely spot on. <laughs> did you know what that meant, Michelle? I mean, did you just get um, the idea that that meant, God, it's just going to be hospital, my new home for a bit? No, um, <laughs> to be fair to my GP, um, given the circumstances of me finding out, he was he was really good in that he said to me, I'm a GP. I'm not a specialist. He said, I can tell you what I know, but you, you do... He knew me well enough to know that I wasn't going to wait till the following Wednesday to go to the lung clinic. I wanted to know now. Mm. Um, and he gave me a printout of the radiographer's report, which I still have. Um, and nothing really changed from that. And he did say to me, he said, you probably will end up having a biopsy. Um, and if they can remove it, that's what they'll do. You'll be referred up to the Brompton. Um and he said, but once you get to the clinic, he said, then they will, they'll, they'll sort of tell you what happens next. Yeah. And he was a million miles off the mark of what happened next. Um, but he, he was right. You know, I was diagnosed, that was in September. I had probably, like you, Deborah, two weeks of CT scans, PET scans, MRIs, lung function tests, more blood tests than you could shake a stick at. <laughs> um, it was like, hang on, guys, you need to leave me with some. Um, Podding and pro- poking you. Yeah, and then and then you learn all about um, MDTs and the Macmillan team. And, and it's very, when it works, it's really, really good and it's really joined up. Um, and I, I can't fault the the local GP, my local hospital, or the team at the Brompton. Um, it was very much when I met my surgeon. This is coming out. He said that's the plan, and I was like, okay. I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> um, no, and I think you're a bit more vulnerable, are you, at the moment of diagnosis? I think it's just like do what you need to do, rather than yes. Yeah, somebody wants want. Um, I was actually referred to some uh, to a psychologist at one point during the, this process. And she said, how do you feel about your treatment options? I went, don't actually have any. Said, <laughs> I said, and we're all following the plan. We're all doing as we're told. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had, I had surgery in the, the November and I cooked Christmas dinner. It nearly killed me. Um, I was exhausted. I don't think I got dressed on boxing day. 
Um, but by Christmas, I was in effect through the other side. But I have to say, nobody at any point mentioned the word neuroendocrine tumour. It was mm. my my lung team referred to it as a carcinoid, which I appreciate is a an old terminology. It's still um, used in lung, though, even to the yeah. specialist, yeah. You know, the typical, atypical. I mean, it's just... Yeah. And, and in fairness, I didn't really care. I just wanted it out. Wow. I just yeah. there anymore. Just get rid. You can call it what you like. Just get on with it. <laughs> well, what did they say to you, Deborah, in terms of after the right. biopsy? Yeah, so after I'd had the biopsy and everything and they'd... So, I had almost two stages because when they first found the, the tumour, um, I, I met um, the rectal surgeon and he was like, right, we want to get this out, but we need to do some more tests for you and stuff. So that's when the kind of the freight train went through for the two weeks and I had all <laughs> of them. And then I And then when I was called back in, that was the first time that, and that was on February the 22nd. I will never forget this date. It's etched in my mind. February 22nd now. I'd gone back in and he was like, okay, right, we've, we've, your, the um, tumor that we found is what we call a neuroendocrine tumor. And, and that's when they also informed me that it had already um, moved into my liver as well. So all up until then, I was quite, although I was going through all the tests and stuff, I was I was still quite keeping the thought of it really being cancer, like a really bad cancer at bay. But the minute he told me it had gone into my my liver um as well, I it, it just obviously just changed my whole perspective on what was going on with me and stuff mm. and uh, all my thinking was is because before that point all my thinking was he's just going to cut it out he's going to cut it out they're going to get rid of it and I'm going to be all right they're going to cut it out and they're going to get rid of it and I'm going to be all right I was literally saying that to myself on repeat up until that point thinking that it was it was you know it's going to be okay um but yeah February the 22nd put change to that and uh, that's when I first discovered neuroendocrine um the, the the Macmillan nurse that was in with me at the time um he was great at drawing a diagram and explaining how it had traveled through my body and stuff um and and then the, the nurse gave me the um she told me about the neuroendocrine website that was when I was first given the information. So I went home, did a whole load of reading, waited to see the... So actually, I, I think I joined a NATA group before I'd even seen the oncologist because I was still waiting to see the oncologist. Um, I was very nervous about seeing the oncologist um, and didn't have an idea of what my treatment plan was going to be. Mm. Um but wanted to try and get as much information as I could, but was getting very confused at the time by all the information on the website because of all the new terminology that was being used. Um, when I look back on it now, I guess that's what was making me so emotional about everything because I was quite, yeah, I start, the emotions started to flow after that. Yeah, but so I, there's, a, there's a point about the time in which you, in which you find out things that you need to find out, you know, is it, 
is it initially or is it you know do you wait until you kind of know exactly what's going on and um I mean did you did you do lots of research Michelle or did you just wait have the operation and thought I'll think about this afterwards or no I was straight on Dr Google um (laughs) and I know (laughs) and I know they say you shouldn't but you know we it's like Pandora's box isn't it they 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 give you a diagnosis and I was shocked to the core I mean I'm sat there thinking I have lung cancer how the hell did that happen um so yes I went home and googled carcinoid and what it entailed and how they were going to get it out and how they were going to get rid and what you know I, I I did go down the rabbit hole um to try and find out um I don't think I came across neuroendocrine and the neuroendocrine foundation until the January when I'd gone back into the Brompton for a checkup and the surgeon said I'm going to refer you to Professor Kaplan at the Royal Free okay was a bit like why Mm. (laughs) we're adding another hospital and team to the uh, to the party Mm. um and he said he said I'm going to send you over there I mean I was under the care of the Brompton for two years but for a little while, the, the two sort of sat alongside each other. So I was referred that I don't think I was seen there until the March afterwards. It was a little bit later on. So then you thought, OK, you could see his, I suppose, relationship here. I mean, he's obviously our, our patron as well, Professor Kaplan. So, um, yeah, yeah, I guess there's, there's that there's that um, connection as well. Um, but I'm it's it's. So interesting listening to both of your stories because, of course, Michelle, you had a, a what would have been thought of as a time as a random scan yep. for yes. a reason that you have no idea really. With no, no, because I don't, I didn't have gallstones. No, so. I was going to ask you, did you actually end up having gallstones? When, I, when as well? I did eventually, when I did eventually get the scan for that, there was nothing there. So. We still to this day do not know what was the matter with me that night, whether it was I ate the same food as everybody else. So it wasn't a stomach bug, but something I will always be grateful for being ill. That sounds really weird, but um, I have no clue what was the matter with me. Was I just tired? Was I just exhausted in need of a holiday and having got everybody there? My body went oh, at last rest and I was ill. I don't know. Um, your body giving you a helping hand maybe who we will never never know know. I'm enormously grateful that that young junior doctor who had pulled the short straw um for bank holiday weekend decided to do a chest x-ray yeah I bet you are and and I and I suppose Deborah in a way just you must think back to all the kind of symptoms that you had pre-diagnosis and I guess you know the 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 point in which it was completely investigated sort of rectally wasn't until I suppose you saw the bleeding was it was that kind of the turning point for you not from the hemorrhoids but sort of the blood in the stools it was the blood in the stools um a red flag symptom for common more common disease I suppose but so yeah I feel I feel 
I feel like I should have paid a bit more attention, but I don't I don't beat myself up about it because the, the, the symptoms that I was getting, again, you, you know, a lot of people suffer from them and kind of things. And, um, you well, know. Well, anyway, and you had this other autoimmune condition, yeah. which I presume still stands, does it? Yes, Is it that- does. Okay. Yeah. And 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 the, the the weird thing is, it's since having my treatment now. So since I'm um, I'm currently on um, PRRT treatment, right? Um, I noticed while having that treatment that some of my symptoms have actually come back. So the dryness in my eyes, the um, the kind of blistering that I used to get in my mouth, those symptoms have started to come back. Um, so. Whether the treatments triggered the autoimmune response, you think? Yeah, I think that's definitely probably what's happened. I'm not a doctor. Um, with what I've been reading, I think that might be the case. Um, of course, we have other things, don't we? I mean, there are other things wrong with humans other than, you know, just having the the, the diagnosis of, of neuroendocrine. You know, you could have many other things going on from, you know, I say autoimmune conditions to... Um, you know, menopause to, you know, other health conditions that we all get. And it's hard sometimes to pull out the symptoms, isn't it? Or, you know, Michelle had some stomach problem, which we don't know what that was. I think for me, while it was, there was, there was so many little things going on that I didn't want to feel like I was like a hypochondriac, you know, like, oh God, this is wrong with me. And now this is wrong with me. And now this is wrong with me. So I think, yeah, I think that I, in the back of my mind, I kept kind of something would come up and I'd just push it to the forefront of like to the back of my mind and just carry on and not not kind of think about, well, actually, there's a series of things going on here, Deborah. Maybe you need to get that looked at a bit more. And would um, that be something that you would leave as a sort of closing remark, maybe of of advice, you know, that that you you were worried about how you were going to be seen as maybe the annoying patient that keeps going back with things that are wrong with you but maybe that's something that one needs to do I mean I, I don't know is that something that I would, I would definitely say that I, th- I think for me personally uh it was eventually when all everything started all of those little symptoms started to come together a lot more I realized that I needed to push to go and get myself um checked um and and looked at so yeah the body like Michelle said is an amazing thing and it has a way of trying to tell you that something's going on and and in in my case I wasn't looking at the the small red flags and it decided to show me the big red flag Mm. with the stalls and that's when I realized I needed to take things a bit more serious so yeah definitely Thanks, Deborah. And I suppose, Michelle, because you didn't have any symptom related to the lung, I guess from your perspective, it's to to prepare, you know, be prepared for the unexpected. Yeah. Um, yeah, as I said, it, it was a real shock. Um, I imagine. I mean, completely. Yeah. That's just, you know, completely out of to, yeah. left field. Um, and as I said, you know, earlier on in the call, in the call, I'm going to get a T-shirt printed that says, no, I don't smoke. No, I never have. No, I don't have a cough. Um, I mean, I know 
we've all heard the adverts where they say, you know, if you've had a cough for two weeks or more, I mean, obviously not in the last two years, because you just assume that that's COVID, but you should go to your doctor and get it checked out. I had nothing. There was no indication whatsoever that there was anything the matter with me, which is quite scary, really. Yeah, it is really scary. And it's, you know, Mm. I, I can't imagine how you know, how going from being perfectly all right. I mean, a night of stomach complaints isn't going to make you think there's something dramatically wrong with you, is it? No, I mean, no. just wouldn't anybody no. we could have that a number of times in our over our lifespan. So yeah. to just then on top of that, be told that there's a shadow in your lung, I think I'd find that, yeah, find that quite difficult, really. So I'm so pleased that, as you say, you know, that that doctor just did it for whatever his reason yeah. was but, uh, <laughs> but but thanks to yeah. him and, and you know thanks to you both for uh, sharing your personal experiences um I, it's a really fascinating conversation and and I can't thank you enough for being here today um uh but I'm gonna thank leave it asking. there just because I I don't want to I could talk for hours though, couldn't you really? It's just so amazing <laughs> the different things that, you know, everybody goes through such different experiences. And, and I think that's one of our biggest challenges in the neuroendocrine world. And it's, you know, how do we stratify that? How do we get people to suspect the disease? And how do we get everyone onto that nice 14 day, what do you call it? You know, the, the 14 day pathway. The 14 way pathway, but you know, with the truck the when you the, the truck goes through the four yeah. whatever the GP says you know um although that's very turbulent at least you're getting all the tests and investigations you need and results and, and a treatment plan at the end of it but we've just got to get people into that process quicker yeah. for sure um but thank you both uh it's been it's been really great speaking to you thank you thank you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe to not just any cancer series wherever you listen to your podcast and please do leave a review throughout february and march we'll be talking about the diagnosis how a definitive diagnosis is made what tests and investigations are needed expert care and the multidisciplinary team getting the right care and support for you preparation and useful questions for clinic and lots more. So I do hope that you can join us. Thank you.